And right now, humankind is the story. So what story are we going to tell? Welcome, welcome back to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on. We haven't figured it out yet, but my name is Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobbin. Are we back? Are we back? What is back? Define back. Uh, We're still sitting here in the same places that we were recording a year ago. (laughs) That qualifies for sure. Um, Yeah, and I mean, I should say that this is not necessarily the opener to a new season but it's also not not the opener to a new season we're not committing to anything but you will hear from us sometime is the is what we're prepared to say right yeah i think this this event fell into our laps in the most amazing and wonderful way and we wanted to share it with you because we had a blast oh mg yes frankly shows in the recording um (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> and, and um, you know, we hope it whets your appetite for more. And the more will be here in... Sometime? I'm going to say two weeks. And that's obviously a lie, but I'm just going to say two weeks and commit to that. As soon as you say that, someone in your family is going to start screaming and the audio is going to interfere with the promises you're making. Or someone in my family. But, like, we never know. That's part of the suspense of the feminist present. It's not a suspense thriller in any way but our release schedule. <laughs> I like that our website still says weekly. Yeah, I when I was making the promises for this event and like sending them like, you know, PR copy and stuff, I was like, which releases nearly weekly with prominent feminists. Anyway, um, who are we talking to today? I have a lot to say about her, but like, how would you introduce her? So we're talking to the one, the only, the original Jeanette Winterson. The Jeanette Winterson. The. I mean, I want to be clear. There are many many copies walking around out there. Right. And this is not one of them. This is no. the OG. The OG, Jeanette. Um, is she a dame? She might be a dame. I'm not even sure. Oh. She should be. She's a CBE, I believe. If she is not yet a dame, let this serve as my petition for her to become one. Are CBEs dames? Readers, you must tell us. CBD is the only acronym I know, and I think it might be snake oil. She's not a CBD, I don't think. <laughs> Although you and I might have been CBD. I don't believe in CBD. If yeah, it's, a, it's not a thing. Yeah. Whatever. That's a separate podcast. Like anti-choice feminism, CBD is not a thing. Not real. Yeah. Like the term yeah. pro-life, yeah. not a thing. <laughs> Um, so like what happened was we got an email from Jeanette Winterson's publicist and I fell out of my chair, just like, like my stomach dropped out of my butt. Jeanette Winterson is the author of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which is like a formative work of lesbian literature that was an epigraph to my first novel. And I didn't know that part of it. Yeah, it felt a little too personal to try to shoehorn into the interview. Um, But yeah, I freaked out. I mean, this is Jeanette Winterson, people like this is anyway, I'm, I still don't have any chill about it. And you'll hear in the interview, I make no pretenses to chill there either. But the point is, Jeanette wrote another brilliant book. The hits just keep on coming. Yeah. It's called 12 Bites. It's about artificial intelligence. You'll hear a lot more about what else it's about. But like, how would you encapsulate it? Yeah, I mean, the subtitle, I think gets it pretty right. How we got here, where we might go next. It's about thinking about technology and telling the story of AI in all of our lives over the last 200 years from kind of a gender lens, which allows her to kind of tell a different future. Mm -hmm. We take back control of 
this technology and don't sort of surrender to it as some kind of faded historical mm -hmm. development, mm -hmm. this technology may well open up a brighter or at least different future mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. all of us. And, you know, from an ecological standpoint, from a justice standpoint, et cetera, et cetera. It's both a bold retelling of the history of technology and a bold reforecasting, mm -hmm. if that's the word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it wouldn't be a Jeanette Winterson book if it wasn't an incredibly funny and somewhat hopeful text, too, as she's yeah. looking the apocalypse or the potential of the apocalypse in the face. She manages to turn it into this like incredible feminist history where we're going to talk about Mary Shelley and we're going to talk about Ada Lovelace. So like I was very much an English major and I did not think I was super interested in a book about artificial intelligence. And Jeanette, Jeanette, like she got me, man. She just got me. I, I, I am powerless to yeah. refuse her. And I should say, I mean, I as we mentioned your your novel. I obviously published a book about the tech industry not too long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it definitely scratched a a spot for me. Where mm -hmm. I, well, on the one hand, where I have a lot of opinions and I've amassed a lot of data and I've done a lot of thinking, and on the other hand, where like there's a lot of exciting work and then there's some work, especially sort of the stuff that warns about technology that I can find a little dull because I've just been mm -hmm. reading so much of it. And it's like this isn't necessarily wrong. It's just I don't know if we need this again. And this book is not that. It is really, it's I mean, fresh. It, it was a, it was fresh. It was invigorating. Again, like on the heels of five years reading a lot of this stuff. And just this one's different. And I came to the conversation brimming with admiration for it. And I left, if anything, even more admiring of it, mm -hmm, I would say. Mm -hmm. I like, <laughs> similarly, I was trying to find a graceful way to tell Jeanette that I really thought she should read your book, What Tech Calls Thinking, and like couldn't quite find a way for that not to sound awkward. So again, let this serve as my petition thus. Jeanette, I really think you should read Adrian's book. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Knowing that she has that book in her hands would just be like... It'd be too much for me. Too much. You would, would leave I, your body. My, my yeah, my stomach would fall out of my butt. You point. would be you would be like metaphysically one of the billionaires being shot into space, but like oh, yeah. as a metaphor. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um so much metaphor there. So like should we talk a little bit about what else we're thinking about for this season? Certainly we will definitely keep talking to feminist authors that you can always count on us for. I feel like we're kind of summoning our pedagogical energy also, Adrian, for like some feminist teaching vibes this season. Do you agree? Yeah. We're thinking about feminist texts. And I think we're thinking about maybe a little bit of background. You may have noticed that we and no one else on this planet organized this podcast according to seasons. And I think we're going to have to stop doing that, basically. <laughs> yes, yes, it, yes. It's it, like it never kind of worked. We're going to be a rolling admissions kind of school exactly. from now on. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And part of that is that I think it allows us to kind of like, we don't want to theme too much, but we want to sort of have certain formats kind of come back up every once in a while. One of those formats is going to be, mm -hmm. I want to look at some classic feminist texts, ones that we all talk about but haven't read recently, or ones that we have haven't read and we really feel guilty about it mm -hmm. and we want to talk about it with some really brilliant people and our characteristically brilliant guests and the same way that we had Susan Stryker talk us through miscongeniality. I, I want to see what happens if we, you know, have an amazing young feminist thinker think us through the feminine mystique or something like that. So that's one of the things that we're planning for this next tranche. Ooh, I know a particular young feminist thinker who has been tweeting a lot recently about reading The Feminine I Mystique. Know. Anyway, that was just a, an idea I was having as you were talking that we can talk about later. I will also note perhaps that when we say texts, 
maybe we mean books and maybe we don't, right? right? right. Like a text can also be a cultural dialogue or an event or something like that. So we're going to leave many doors wide open for ourselves and for you. I'm psyched about this. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like I said, this isn't going to be like the last theme where basically that's what we did for six weeks. I see us sort of coming back to this whenever we find the right conversation, right? Whenever we have the right interlocutor, the right book. One of the issues, of course, is that I'm like watching, you know, Jude Law's bare ass and then talking to mm. the wonderful Terry Castle mm. about it. Don't forget getting paid to look at Jude Law's bare ass and talk to Terry Castle about it. That's my favorite part. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's nice work if you can get it. Um, uh-huh. But unlike that, you know, some of these books are 500 pages long. So we're just going to need a little bit of run up, which means that they're, you know, we, we will have to have different kinds of episodes too. Otherwise, this is going to be a monthly podcast at the very best of times. <laughs> Nerd talk. We read 500 page books so you don't have to. Um, yeah, we've got all sorts of plans. Oh my God, we should do it like like the Katwak guys. We just like, nerd, nerd, nerd. I can't do that. <laughs> Bostonians say nerd. I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's okay. Okay. A couple of minutes ago, I heard a man who sounded hungry come in and tell me that you had 10 minutes so i think i think we got to wrap this up and take it to the bridge i think we should probably take it to the bridge but so enjoy our conversation with jeanette winterson a amuse bouche if you will for um, <laughs> the forever season of the feminist present uh season that never ends if you will i don't know if i will maybe i won't i will for now thank you for joining us enjoy this conversation with Jeanette winterson enjoy This is so fun. I'm so excited to be here. I can't even be cool about it. Um, <laughs> I I have no idea what what relevance two Stanford feminists would have on a book about AI and the internet, but we'll see if we can draw a few connections for this audience tonight. Um, how exciting to be in conversation with the Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette, thank you for joining us. It's so lovely oh, to see your cozy you. background. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And, and just in case anyone hasn't done the time check, it's just after 11 where I am in the UK now which is why I've got the fire blazing and I do have a bit of organic cognac glass here but I'm so pleased to be with you and if you see my cat or my dog I'm sorry (laughs) well your book itself I want to thank politics and prose and books and books for putting on this event and the book 12 bites itself makes an impenetrably compelling argument for why you should buy this book from these independent bookstores and not from Amazon so so I encourage everyone in the audience to make such a yeah, because otherwise we're just subsidizing that fucking rocket. I'm saying yes, yes. and we're going to talk about it. What and could we're be less feminist than that, right. frankly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm having fun already. Okay, so Jeanette. We're going to fit a lot into this 40 minutes, but I'm sure you have some fans of your previous work, including myself in this audience. So I wanted to start with your first chapter where you sort of connect the thinking that you're doing in 12 Bytes with your previous work. And if I could just read for a moment, you're referring back to why be happy when you could be normal and oranges are not the only fruit. And you write... 
The character in Oranges called Jeanette is me and not me because I learned early that to read yourself as a fiction as well as a fact is power. You can change the story because you are the story. If your story is terrible, and mine was, the transforming power of fiction is what you need. So what I scribbled ecstatically in the margin as I was reading that was fiction as AI. And I'm really curious to hear you speak about you're drawing this connection between telling the same story in a fiction versus a nonfiction medium, and you're connecting that to sort of these man-made, woman-made versions of intelligence. Can you talk about how those concepts connect in your amazing brain? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right to say it's it's connection. It's all about connection. I mean, that's what the internet offered, isn't it? It offered us, uh, we thought at the time, unmediated, uncensored connection mm. where we could be free. We didn't know that it was going to be entirely infested uh, with advertising cookies and trackers and everything that monetized every moment of every day. We didn't know that. Um, it was meant to be this free space, which for me... Fiction, the life of the mind, the world of the imagination has always been where you could reinvent yourself, not, not in an anarchic way where you didn't care about anybody else, but in a way you could situate yourself both in your own life and in a useful way in the outside world. So it was freedom. You could police it, you could have boundaries, but also it was limitless in that it was your space, is your space. I mean, that's what fiction is. And I have always wanted to live in that space because I think the mind is an unbounded condition. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is how extraordinary that everything I learned when I was growing up with Mrs. Winterson, uh, that this world is not my home, you know, the body's temporary, consciousness is not obliged to materiality, there is more after this. I can't believe that now cutting edge computing technology and old time religion are saying the same thing. But between those two things, there's an intersection which has always been what humans have intuitively understood, which is that we are more than things made of meat. You know, our feet are on the ground and our heads are in the air and we find it difficult. We know that we're animals. We know that. But also we sense every one of us that we are more than animals and we can't manage, you know, this horrible contradiction, this dichotomy. And that's something I wanted to write about. How you find that freedom, that imaginative spiritual freedom, which now seems to be becoming tantalizingly real with the world of AI. Um, but how it doesn't become yet another prison, because, you know, you both know you guys that whether this becomes dystopia or utopia is really up to the humans who are in charge we can't just say oh yeah we're going to create this amazing thing you know ai is a tool now but what happens when it's not a tool when it's agi artificial general intelligence then people just seem to be saying like elon musk and co oh we won't have a chance or bill gates this thing's going to be smarter than us what will we do and it's like we're just giving over responsibility but we are responsible for what happens next, you know? So if we're creating another sky god, another in a huge figure that will solve all the problems, so we think, we've got to remember that this is in our image and whatever else fiction tells you, it's, it tells you, as you said at the beginning, that you can change the story because you are the story. And right now, humankind is the story. So what story are we gonna tell? 
it's up to us. We have to figure it out. Is that what you're telling? Like we are responsible for that. That's a, that's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility, but who else <laughs> is going to do the work? I think <laughs> you're right, but it's scary. But it's also really liberating because I mean, surely that's what we want to be as humans. It's like being the parents, isn't it? It's like being the grown-ups right. in the room. You know, also scary. Planet. It's really a close call now whether we survive and get to the next stage of human evolution or we don't. This is a really big moment, I think, in human history. And if we survive it and we look back, we will recognize what a huge moment this is, the times that we're living in. And that's why I say we have to be responsible. And it's not just a science thing. It's not just a computing thing. It's not just a politics thing. That's what I mean about the stories, which artists of all kinds have always known, that everything that we do, starts as an idea in somebody's head. It's not 3D, it's not dimensional, it's a crazy idea in somebody's head. And then it becomes 3D and dimensional, whether it's a political system, whether it's communism, fascism, you know, whether it's Donald Trump, God help us, you know, whether it's a beautiful building, whether it's a hideous despoilation of the planet, it all starts off internally, not externally. And if we could make that connection and take responsibility, then that will give us hope because we're not doomed. It's not Armageddon. It's not some Gotterdammerung or auto defay of the world being consumed in flames like my fire over there. This is a chance to change it, a huge chance to change it. And that's why you need artists, writers, creatives of all kinds, because we know that you can change the story. You say at some point in the book, towards the end of it, that if we don't get better stories about women, then the distortions of the past will warp our future. And I think that that... That's the other part of it, right? There's a kind of liberation, as you say, in telling stories, but there's also an awesome responsibility there, isn't there? Can you talk about that a little bit? How did you, you know, it's such an expansive story. How did you decide what had to be part of it in order to tell the story responsibly and to sort of give us a sense of this openness in the future? For me, storytelling is freedom. And look, the advertising industry really understands that. They're always selling us stories about we can be our best self and why we're worth it. And all of this, all of it, they, you know, they really get it. This kind of behaviorism gone mad. Somehow we can always be manipulated and nudged into the story they want to tell us, the story that they think will. We'll, spend more money on their products and that's why you have to always be reclaiming the territory from all the things out there that just want to tell you how life is who you are what's going to happen next that's no good and again this is where you know artists really step in because nobody creates anything without being single-minded without not worrying about what other people are saying without sticking to their own vision and we do need a sense of that not to be endlessly swayed around and the reason I wanted to write 12 Bytes was that I knew that the computing revolution was already impacting our lives in such a pervasive way, how could it not? And that it was going to be the story of the future. So I needed to understand it because there's no joy in ignorance. You know, the more I know, the better I feel, even though I can only ever know a sliver of life. I just have to not just stay curious, but also work hard diligently to get the knowledge. So I thought, right, I'm going to go back and look at the first industrial revolution, which began in my country, England. You know, it's the moment when fossil fuels come out of the ground for the first time in world changing quantities. It's the moment when everything starts to accelerate, which is the buzzword of now. It's the moment when repetitive work becomes mechanized, which is the genius of that revolution, but also the moment when human beings themselves 
start to be sidelined, start to be monetized. You know, that's what the factory system did. It monetized humans in a really terrifying way. It's where, so when you start getting raises like a pair of hands or mind the machine, and humans then become entirely subservient to the rhythms of the machine, which is frightening. You know, we saw what the horrors of the factory system in my country, in your country, which took at least 100 years for the benefits to trickle through. You know, what we do know is at the beginning of the industrial revolution productivity went up by 25% but wages only went up by 5% and here we are again now on the cusp of another huge revolution and what I wanted to say was look the point of history is to learn from our mistakes so can we look back at the last time we kind of did this and see what we did wrong see what we got right and not just repeat it in this absolutely mindless stupid way because this is a chance to get an amazing revolution right you know the, the data revolution the computing revolution, it can change everything for the good this could be a utopia and that's why i'm so so excited by it at the same time of saying there is also a real problem yeah i mean um i know that laura and i both were obsessed with this line of yours where you say the rights of women was the starting gun for feminism industrialization pulled the trigger and we were both like fighting words the parallel you just <laughs> outlined exactly what sort of flashed in our minds but we're like wow what does that mean for right now what are the things that we we were ready to seize some shit that's what i'm saying yeah <laughs> what do we want to seize what, what what do we need to seize yeah. here yeah. yeah we do i mean look in, in the industrial revolution what the workers realized was that they could collectivize they could form unions that they were not atomized and alone the problem now we've just seen it in with the amazon victory is that Workers do feel atomized and alone. They're afraid to form collectives, afraid to form unions. And if they try to, let's say they're most certainly discouraged, you know, if not actively smashed. Now, that wouldn't happen if their employers, you know, mainly a lot of big tech companies, didn't fear the power of people banding together, coming right, together. Right. You know, at the moment, groups are only effective if they can make some difference on the conditions of their lives. And that is being disallowed more and more. And it's worse with the gig economy, the side hustles. You know, you got, you got three jobs, you have a portfolio. You know, you, there's no loyalty between employer and employee. People are soon moving on. And, you know, the rhetoric is this gives everybody lots of freedom, but it also gives everybody total insecurity. You know, Marx wrote about this and said, look, you know, capitalism works when it's continually churning the product, causing unrest, causing unsettlement, dissatisfaction. So nobody knows if they're safe, whether they'll have a roof over their head, whether they'll have food on the table for their kids. And my feeling is, you know, look, we're in the 21st century. We should be having food on the table, a roof over people's heads, you know, money for the kids, for their shoes, for their education. These are really basic things. We're not asking for a rocket to outer space, for fuck's sake, guys. We're just asking for food for the kids, clean water, clean air, you know. Why is it century 21 and we're still arguing about whether these are basic rights or whether they're sort of God-given gift if the masters wish it? And so I do worry that we're in a situation where although we have the technology across the globe, which we've seen can work amazingly, so people can get on there, you know, they can get on their WhatsApp, their Twitter, they can join together in a way which can't immediately be stopped or policed, and yet we're not joining together in a way that is effective. And it's how we solve this next, I think. I don't know what you think about that, but how we get this global movement, whether it's going to be about climate change with women like Greta Thunberg, whether it's going to be about workers' rights, 
whether it's just really going to be about basic freedoms in the coming age. You know, if we're going to have robots doing much of the work, if the world of work is changing, shall we have a universal basic income? How is it going to work? And it's not simply enough to say, let's leave it to the politicians. I think this is a moment where we, as human beings, if we want to maintain and fight for democracy, have to be involved. Absolutely. And I think one connection you're drawing throughout the book is if we go back to this Marxist axiom, seize the means of production, you are connecting that to big tech and big data in which we are the means of production, right? We are what is being mined and exploited. Yes. You know, we are yes. both the raw material now, as as well as the worker. That's what's yes. so extraordinary. We're, we're mining ourselves, which creates both a vulnerability and an opportunity to kind of fully connect this arc is like the engine that can bring us down is also the engine that can bring us together to collectively organize. Um, And I find that, you know, as as a feminist who spends a lot of time online, I find that really exciting in a lot of, in as many ways as I find it dangerous and disturbing. It is exciting. Well, I was thinking about So I picked up this book and were it by any other author, I would not pick up a book about artificial intelligence and expect so much fantastic history of literature and history of feminism. But you cast Mary Shelley and Ada Lovelace in the drama that you're building. And I learned some things that I did not know about the interconnections between these two women. So for people who haven't read the book yet, but probably share your obsession with these feminist historical figures, can you talk a little bit about how those women play into the story you're telling here? and how they're connected to each other. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that surprised me when I was writing these essays, which were done for myself, because I needed to answer some questions, was how big a role women had played, you know, right from the 1800s onwards, although that history has very much been suppressed or lost or comes patchily, as does so much of women's history, rather than in some continuous confident flow that we can easily access. It's not so. It's in the tributaries, in the bywaters. And obviously I knew that Mary Shelley, when she was 19, had written Frankenstein, a book that was so prescient because she really envisioned an alternative life form. The monster, the world's most famous monster, made out of body parts from the graveyards, but also out of electricity, which was a nascent force then and poorly understood. But this young woman, a teenager, had this vision that electricity was going to be really the source, the the energy source for this astonishing revolution. And here we are now in century 21, we're creating an alternative life form, not out of body parts, but out of the zeros and ones of code, but powered by electricity. So how this woman of 19 understood this when in 1816 on Lake Geneva. It's really hard to fathom, but on that holiday where she was writing Frankenstein, which she was writing as a, as a horror story to pass the time because it was raining continually, and of course they had no internet, so they couldn't pass the time. On that holiday was Lord Byram, a great friend of her husband, Percy Shelley, a man that she very much enjoyed and admired, although he was a man of his time, England's most famous poet, mad, bad and dangerous to know. And he just had a baby daughter who he would never see again, Ada. And he'd written to Ada's mother, his estranged wife, and said, don't let Ada go anywhere near poetry. 
So the Ada's mother was quite happy with this because, you know, with Lord Byron, she'd really had the fuck of it with poetry. And she thought, <laughs> great, what should we do? Um, so she did something really unusual because girls were not educated in the early 1800s or indeed in the early 1900s. So what she did was organise a maths tutor for little Ada. Um, and Ada, Ada Byron, as she was then, had the best maths tutor in England at the time, um, who turned out also to be a friend of a guy called Boole. And Boolean algebra is at the base of everything you're doing now, your iPhone, your laptop, anything you do is run by, you know, your search engine is Boolean truth tables, everything. So little ladies hanging around Augustus de Morgan and Mr. Boole. And lo and behold, she finds that she's really gifted. And then she meets this guy called Babbage, who's building the world's first computer, like some steampunk Victoriana mad thing of, you think of a, an iron bridge, really. It was huge. It was like this giant train set. They even thought they could live in it at one point. Anyway, it never worked. But Ada thought, well, if he could build his computer, I could program it. And that's the first time the word program actually appears. And you know, this is really astonishing in the 1830s that she comes up with that idea. And lots of the computing terms that we now take for granted. So it was these two women really linked in this strange way by Lord Byron that had this vision of what the future would be like, but the present was too heavy for them. You know, the, in the 19th century was a hugely heavy present. Just think of it. It's iron, it's steel, it's railroads, it's coal. You know, everything is larger than life and it's hard to carry. Nothing is, nothing is, is light, flexible, infinite. That was later, but they saw it. And I love it that this starts with these two young women, because it does. It does. And you draw that lineage in such a cogent way that I was I was just riveted. And I also think this might be a note for your publisher, but I think you should market this book heavily to like the required science and math programs for humanities oh, yeah. undergrads, because I have never understood Boolean logic better in my life than I did reading this book. And I was an English. Yeah, well, writer. I had to get my goddaughter <laughs> to teach me because she's a neuroscientist. Oh, that's amazing. And she's so she disgusted great. by anybody in the humanities. I said, look, how can I do Boolean? and truth tables and she said she looked at me with absolute contempt but she had to teach me that's why it's explained carefully because I had to understand it before I could explain yeah it. it's not easy to do to transmute these really complex mathematical and scientific ideas and you know one of yeah. the things I just love about because you know Ada was a girl so she had to do sewing um, as all girls did there's that wonderful illustration in there isn't there because the jacquard loom yeah. was invented in France and that that allowed patterns to be represented as holes in punch cards really so in fact that means what's visible becomes empty space so it's the first moment when something that's really three-dimensional in this case a piece of cloth on a vast loom is actually represented by holes Emptiness, mm. empty space mm. and parts of light, like the center of the atom. So it's a kind of mind-boggling quantum leap anyway. So you've got these punch cards and they went in and made the pattern. And Ada and Babbage are looking at this bloody jacquard loom. And Ada suddenly thinks, you know what? That's how we program it. We make, we make punch cards. And what in Bill Gates and Paul Allen were using punch cards. Punch yeah, cards yeah. went on until the 1980s. Totally. And it goes right back to the Industrial Revolution and the Jacquard Loom. And you know what? I love things like that because suddenly yeah. you see it. And then you see how we got from there to here. So instead of floating about on this horrible atomized raft of time where nothing connects, it does connect. And the whole point of the internet is connection. So I wanted to connect right. people through history from where they were to where they are. 
I love the way you, I think you said tributaries and meanders, if I remember correctly. Like, you know, the fact that like that thinking about it through a feminist lens really talks about the stuff that almost happened that didn't quite happen. And one of the things that I must admit I didn't realize as you're just describing, you know, the kind of the importance of, of empty space of the punch cards, et cetera, et cetera, is also that part of what we fetishize, right, with Babbage is the computer over the the work of computing about the kind of the amount of just busy work that goes into it. And I, I think about a book that I know you cite in the in the book by Mar Hicks, right? Programmed Inequality, which is about kind of an almost history about how the British technology industry sort of almost started through, but didn't quite make it because of gender discrimination. And I love the way that like you can activate all these things that are sort of not part of the big story of this object that we've all come to fetishize, if you sort of start centering women because they're doing the stuff, they're doing the thing, and suddenly things become just a lot more more complicated there, which I, I just they absolutely were doing love. the thing. I mean, you know, the word computer always referred to humans until it didn't. right. They were doing computing tables, usually logarithms, so that you could chart your position at sea. Right, whatever you need. Um, it, it's just the ratio between numbers. So that's what they were doing, human computers. And it was Babbage who said, "Look again, it's the genius of the industrial revolution. Anything that is repetitive can be mechanized." So logarithm tables could be mechanized. So that's when the, the computer human become, can become the computer machine. But, you know, in the war at Bletchley Park, when everybody knows the story of Alan Turing and that's tremendous work to build those computing sets that could break the Enigma code. Of the 10,000 people working there in the war, 7,500 were women. And afterwards, those women were very skilled com- computing techies according to the technology of the time, but they couldn't get jobs because they were women. And that's one of the things that is so extraordinary and so terrible, which I didn't expect to find as I researched this, or I didn't realize that in America, you know, you've got all this anyway, that women, we know this from the wonderful film, Invisible uh, Hidden Figures, women were working on the computing side all of the time. And yet Their story has been lost. And I wanted to uncover some of those stories and tell them in the book. And I didn't know that in America, until 1984, women made up 37% of computing science majors. I was really shocked by that. And then with the launch of the Apple personal computer in 1984, all the advertising at that moment literally swivels towards the male gaze. It's all about geeky guys and boys. And then women start to drop out of computing science like they were never there. And then you get a terrible book by Stephen Levy, who really ought to be taken to task about this a lot, called Heroes and Hackers, uh, all about computing. It's all guys in garages, you know, geeks in policemen. There are no women in that book, and that is ahistorical, slanderous, libelous. Everything about it is wrong, and it's still in print on people's shelves. Why? Why? You think those women weren't there instead of being just ignored or pushed out? People can buy that one on Amazon if they're going to buy it. Yeah. Um, well, I, hope so. I think they should start writing <laughs> that guy. It's an absolute scandal that something which is so anti-factual should still be in print, yeah. um, offering yeah. to oh. tell the story of the computing history of America, let alone the fact that isn't where it started. We do have to look at other countries as well. So it's a terrible book, but it's still offered to undergraduates as some kind of classic. Uh, And actually, it's as bad as a Wild West movie. It's absolute bollocks. 
Be consuming now. It will not be appearing on any syllabi assigned by the people <laughs> represented here. I can tell you that much. <laughs> For me, this is too big a question and it gets away too far from the book, but I, I am always curious about what made that story so compelling, right? As, as you say, it's really striking. They're not subtle in the erasure of the historic record. What is at stake there? Why did that happen so quickly? And does that sort of have to do with that's the moment when this industry kind of took hold of our future and kind of said there's only one version of this future and it involves you with my product? Um, for better or for worse, uh, is there something about the regendering of the tech industry that goes along with a kind of foreshortening of that of that big future that you're trying to reclaim? Mm -hmm. Would you make that Would you make that connection, or do you think that that's get, maybe getting a little too speculative? No, I think there is. I, I think things become. I mean, it's like the algorithm itself. Once the bias has been fed in, once the fakery, the lies, has gone into the system, it's amplified back out again as some sort of objectivity. You know how it is. It's with data sets. You know, all computers are trained on data sets. But if the data set is flawed, then, you know, what's the bloody computer going to do at the moment? <laughs> it can't think for itself and say, actually, you know, I think there's a problem here. I mean, that's beginning, but it's not there yet. So... You know, we, we go on telling stories which are false and they get falser. They get more false as they go along. And so there's this received wisdom. You still hear it all the time that somehow women and girls don't want to build the platforms, go into engineering or do the programming as though they never did. But that's so not true. It's just not true. It's not true till 1984. I mean, a lot of women were fired and not promoted, not allowed to do the work, but they were there. You know, there's a great picture in the book, a man, where there's this woman sitting at a kitchen table with a little toddler looking up at her and the lady is very absorbed in her work. And what she's doing is programming the black box of Concord, which yeah. she's doing with pen and paper. And, you know, this was a company run in England called Freelance Programmers that secretly only employed women. Their head of operations called herself Steve. In fact, her name was Stephanie, but she didn't get any work when she signed the letter to Stephanie. She's Steve Shirley. There's a fantastic TED Talk, which you should all watch. This came into a multi-million pound company, Freelance Programmers, and she secretly only employed 300 women who couldn't get jobs who were otherwise fired after the war in England right up until the 70s, 80s. And it was all discrimination that kept those women out. It wasn't the fact that they couldn't do it. It's the fact that they weren't allowed to do it. And so this rubbish has just continued. And, and you think, why, how? And it's, look, I don't think it's a conspiracy of sort of evil, evildoer males who sort of want to run down women. I just, sometimes I think it's plain stupidity that then gets amplified. Um, so that Laziness. we start to believe the story. You know, we had it with Google recently, didn't we? Saying, oh, no, 20% of women in tech is about right. Well, <laughs> that's just a historically wrong. Yeah. But if we don't support women and girls in schools, you know, if we don't stop them 
thinking that their only duty in life is to do their makeup like Kim Kardashian, then we're in trouble. You know, we shouldn't take boys seriously and treat girls flippantly as though their career won't matter. They'll get married. They'll come out to have children. They'll do something else. You know, and I've met too many clever girls on both sides of the Atlantic who say to me, yeah, I'm really good at maths and science, but I can also speak a language. I can also do something else. And do I really want to be in a room with a load of sweaty guys? No. You know, and I've just heard of two women who are resigning from Google that I know personally because they cannot stand the atmosphere. That's not good. Yeah. So what are we doing that is bringing in intelligent girls and then getting rid of them? You know, in India at the moment, 51% of computer work is done by women. 51% of the industry is female. But when you go up, less than 25% is management and less than 1% is CEO. So the women are all brought in because in India, it's seen as a job women can do at home. So they're, they're encouraged. They can do it with their kids, no problem. But then they don't make it up through the ranks. But it goes to show that in a different culture, it's a different story. So, you know, the, the Western story, oh, women, women are free, so they could do this, but they don't want to do it. It's not true. And that was the most disturbing thing that I found when I was writing this book. I didn't want to find that story. I didn't, I didn't want it to. I didn't believe it, actually. It was as I researched it, I thought, Jesus, women have, have been, first they've been pushed out, and secondly, they've been written out. And actually, you know what? I don't know why. I just don't know why. You know, Jeanette, what you're saying is actually really personal to my autobiography because I'm thinking of my mother, who was one of four chemistry majors in her graduating class in college and went on to be one of those early female programmers in the 70s, but was not able to build a career doing that and ended up teaching high school chemistry and physics because it was a lot easier for a working mother to build a schedule around that. So I I have lived some of the human effects of what you're describing, and I'm profoundly grateful to you for the research you've done around this. And... But you're right about the scheduling because yes, whether we like it or not, women are in the large part responsible for childcare. And yes, and they can't yes. do what the guys at Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Google do. Just let's just stay here in a frat dorm situation right. for a week. And the wife will take care of it. You know, your yeah. children can starve to death. Uh, <laughs> never mind. You know, just lock the dog up, walk away, and no woman will live like that. Or should, or could actually, no human should actually live like that. No, but because that's the only way that you can get into the interesting bits of the company, you have to give your life over and say, "Of course, I'll sleep on your purple sofa and eat pizza for two weeks, and not go home and have a shower." Which is actually an unreasonable expectation for men too. You know, like that doesn't do anything good for gender parity. Even if you're 24 and if you're 24 and you don't shave, you should not be subsisting on soil. It's not if you if you go home from with with one lesson from this conversation. What we really want is for those guys to say, okay, this is a bit frat dormy studenty, and we need to change it because it's not sustainable with the world as it is really lived, and it depends on these invisible beings who we don't pay and we don't value called women who are actually at home holding the thing together while we sleep on the purple sofa and eat pizzas so it's things like that we need that's why we need the guys in there to say you know what we're not doing it we're not doing it and when that starts to happen then i think we'll really see a change I mean, it's, it's interesting also to think about sustainability here, right? One thing that focusing on, on gender and the gendered work in, in the tech industry does kind of make visible that this is not 
sort of a very ecological technology, right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm currently on the Stanford campus. And of course, this was a manufacturing area area for a long time, you know, like IBM. If, but if you look at the old pictures of like Fairchild Semiconductor, if you look at IBM in the early days, you see mostly women in those factory floors um, or production floors making the semiconductors. All that was was outsourced to Hong Kong and Japan and Taiwan, uh, I think in the late 70s, early 80s, don't quote me on that. But the interesting thing, of course, is the one legacy that's left in Silicon Valley are a bunch of Superfund sites that need to be cleaned up by the Environmental Protection Agency. The jobs went poof and away. The poison is what, what stayed behind. The money goes and what's left is the despoilation. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what we're going to have to change because we do. I, I mean, I do believe the technology is in place. You know, I was reading a piece today about some students from the University of Eindhoven uh, in the Netherlands who've just completed an eighteen hundred mile journey in an electric car that they made themselves. And oh, wow. when you're parked, you just pull the roof out like a camper van, and it's a solar panel. And this thing can do four hundred and fifty miles a day easily. And these students built it, and they were saying, "Look." We've done this and we've just gone 1,800 miles using the sun. We didn't need any charging stations. You know, what are you all freaking out about? If we can do this, you can all do this. That is like 3D printing. That means you can print your house overnight and the guys can come in the morning, take it away and put it up. We've got wonderful, wonderful technological breakthroughs in place. That, that we could really start using now. It should be all praise to the tech that's done this. But... I don't want us to be so far behind that we're still saying, oh, God, you know, we can't manage. Where are the charging stations? Let's hold on to the fossil fuels. It's let's go on pouring concrete into the ground. You know, concrete, the third biggest polluter on the planet. We don't have to do this anymore. We could just say stop now. And those technological solutions that have come out of the computing revolution are real. And they don't need to be the polluters, the despoilants, the contaminants of the future. These really can be the saviors of the future now. It's clean. It could be clean. Yeah. So I don't want everybody out there to despair. I really would say to everyone, look, look for the small print. Don't look for the doom and gloom headlines. Read things that are a bit off beam and you will start to find out how many wonderful things are happening in the world that potentially will make the world a better place. Well, I think that's so important to emphasize. And I also want to emphasize for people considering buying this book, which you should all have already done. But if you're still thinking about it, it's so funny. Like it's such a funny and witty and uplifting book, even as you're examining some of these capitalistic horrors. And also, Jeanette, you know, like for those of us who have been following your work for a while, like we knew you had kind of an obsession with religion. We knew you think about sexuality a lot. And it wasn't until Frankenstein that I was like, she's a nerd. Like she loves technology. So, so you mentioned in 12 bites that like this deep consideration of a of artificial intelligence began for you in 2009. Is that how long you've been writing this book or like, talk to me about the timeline of like your geekiness for technology. Hmm. No, it wasn't. I didn't start writing. I started reading it because it started with Ray, Ray Kurzweil. Is that how you pronounce him? I think so. Yeah. yeah. 
because I just love That's him. how I've been Yeah, I love his optimism. You know, and I just, I thought, right, I have to, and I just picked him up in a bookshop with uh, um, Singularity is Near, and I thought, what's the singularity? I like the sound of it, and read it, and really started from there. And that, because, you know, he's a broad thinker, uh, his parents were both artists, so he's he comes at things a bit differently. And I really connected with the way that he talked about uh, computing, about tech, about its possibilities, you know, just this really steady certain vision of where we could go and the idea which then became clear to me that Homo sapiens has been on the planet for 300,000 years and that this may be the time when our evolutionary journey has to move a little bit, you know, that we might have to blend with the technology we're creating, that transhuman followed by posthuman is is where we're actually heading and that's not a scary thing it's just what we've got to do because this is a chance for us to intervene you know nature has mm. done it by natural selection we in the world of acceleration and intervention can perhaps do it ourselves now and that seemed to me to be an optimistic story not yeah, the story yeah. not an armageddon story you know this business of the stories we tell really does matter if we're completely doom focused we are doomed you know i don't mm. by that mean fanciful magical thinking that everything will be all right but it's just the sense that you know we have to have some optimism uh, that we can change things you know and, and Kurzweil didn't I thought I like this guy so that's when I started reading on to try and keep up and also because I have geeky godchildren and I didn't want to be left behind in all this you know because mm. let's think of it like this we know you know we know that computers are trained on data sets but so are humans everybody is trained on a data set it's your background right. your education your family that's your religion right. your that's a data set it's fed into you the impressionable human but the great thing is that we can update our data sets either spontaneously or consciously or because the outside world is always intervening and that you know that's one of the glories of it no matter how rigid you are your life can bust open and your data set is suddenly <laughs> excluded something else happens and that's I thought right, yeah. myself, you know I know that as people get older they sort of stop stop learning stop being curious stop being interested and I think that's a terrible mistake so I needed to do something about my data set and that's why I, I, I got involved and then I wrote Frankenstein the novel because I'd read Mary Shelley again and at the end of it I thought I've got a lot more questions so I thought I write some essays for myself and people you know my publishers are very generous with me because when it starts I don't it may not, I don't have a mind that works in a linear way. I work in patterns. So I can see connections, but they don't make sense in the way that you need to make sense when you're formulating a text. So my poor publishers have to put up with me making patterns. And then eventually I pull it round into a shape. So I could see patterns emerging mm -hmm. across history, philosophy, poetry, religion, which was very exciting. And then I had to think, okay, how am I going to do this in 12 essays to deliver to a general, curious, intelligent reader who would like, as I do, an arc of time over 250 years? More life into a time without boundaries, you might say? Yeah, that's Carol Bloom. You know, hardly the world's greatest feminist, but somebody that I stuck with all his life, I always read him, even though, you know, he's sometimes an absolute monster, Carol Bloom, but... It was a beautiful phrase of his when he was doing a personal interpretation. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought more life into a time without boundaries, which is so evocative. And I thought, but that's what AI offers. And I think Kurzweil would certainly say that's what it offers. Yeah. An end to the limitations of the biological self, perhaps even a glimpse of immortality. 
Certainly, all of the old hierarchies and binaries that humans impose on ourselves, and we do, because, you know, they didn't fall from outer space. We did this. You know, the way we live is not a law like gravity. You know, it's propositional. We've made this up. It's another story. So the hierarchies and the boundaries that have made human society do not need to be there. And it's when you realize that and how open everything could be, how changeable everything Mm. could be. And one of the things I do love about AI, which I talk about in an essay called Fuck the Binary, is that we gender it. We turn it into some sexist monstrosity or not. But AI, it doesn't have a race. It doesn't have a skin color. It doesn't have a face. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't eat. It doesn't sleep. It doesn't want a yacht um, or 15 mistresses or a land grab or power. And so we learn from the thing that we are creating. We're creating something which is actually quite Buddhist in the sense of non-attachment. Everything that matters to us is not going to matter to an artificial general intelligence. And that's the bit that the guys like Elon Musk and Bill Gates aren't explaining. The reason it's scary is that it doesn't share our materialistic, atavistic, chimp-like values, which are all about war and domination. Why would it? Why would anything that you create now want to look like the way we have managed society? This is a great chance for a change. We should probably get to some Q&A questions, shouldn't we? I was going to say the same thing, and I was thinking that Jeanette just built us a perfect bridge to one that I would love to begin with, which is, what piece of technology do you have a love-slash-hate relationship with? <laughs> um, it's the one I won't use, which is I won't use any uh, Alexa-enabled devices. Ah. Because, because part of me, I mean, I do obviously, you know, every so often I, I bash the wrong button on my computer and the helpful person says, how can, you know, what can I do for you, whatever. And I just say nothing, thanks, I'm fine, and I can't help it. And that's because we all have a relationship. If anything speaks to us, we talk back, we can't help it. <laughs> um, and I... I'm aware that when the internet of things kicks off and I'll, I will be living in a house which is responding to me. So, we, you know, it's most it's terrible comic moments are that if it's a no carb day, the toaster won't toast my bread, you know, and the fridge will lock at midnight if I'm on a diet and the bed will immediately tell my doctor that I haven't slept well and the self-driving car will take me to the police station. You know, all of these things, you know, and it's surely going to happen to me. But at the moment, I just think to myself, you know what? I know she can hear me, as it were, because you call her a she. Because if I'm, if I'm having, I did once go to a friend's house and we were having a conversation about some new dining chairs. And then when she logged on, of course, to her laptop, what came up? Adverts for new dining chairs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Terrifying. of course it's obvious, but also you think, what the fuck? You know, so that's why I don't, at the moment, I'm trying to, I'm trying not to live in the internet of things, even though I'm curious about it. Some of it, no doubt, will delight me. But at that moment, I guess we give over all our, I, I guess it's already a fantasy, isn't it? A fantasy of privacy, a fantasy of autonomy. You know, the kids who are, my, my godchildren just say, they know where you are. They know what you do. They know what you want. Forget it. They're quite cool with the fact that it's already over. I'm not. You know, I live in the country. I've got my fire. I still believe I'm a private citizen. I'd like to keep that a bit longer. So the bit I fear, you know, it's what Larry, Larry Page says at Google where he says, look, 
you won't need the device because you'll be the device um, once yeah. it's all connected. And instead of, of looking something up, you'll just think the thought. He says it's like prayer. It's going to be like auto magic. You'll think, oh, God, where's, you know, where, where's the nearest museum in this strange town? And the answer will just come into your head. Um, you know, Elon Musk with Neuralink is developing the implants at the moment for, for people you know, who are paraplegic or disabled that will allow them to connect to computer. But the idea in the long run is that we'll all have implants which connect us seamlessly to the web, to the Internet. But it's a revolving door, isn't it? So yeah, privacy yeah. is actually nearly gone. That's the thing that scares me most. But that is because I am an analog human. I wasn't born into this. I didn't grow up with it. So I'm like somebody remembering how great my horse was as I drive off in my car. I, think. I, I, I am now, I will now leave this conversation <laughs> picturing you and negotiating with the fridge door and it's sort of sounding like hell. I'm it's sorry, coming I can't, that, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> so open up, I want that yogurt. <laughs> so and another question that came up, where a lot of sort of uh, anxieties swirl around this question of AI uh, was this this idea of humans competing against AI to justify what con constitutes work. So this attendee asks, do you think employers argue against raising wages when they compare the quote unquote labor that AI is capable of computing and processing sophisticated information with the labor that only humans can do? elder and infant care, nuanced communication, janitorial service, et cetera. Are they comparing apples and oranges? I think that's a great, a great question. But how, how is this rewriting what we even think of as, as human labor? Or as labor? Sorry, I shouldn't say human, as labor. The connection between income and work, is it's already strained and it's going to have to change. You know, it, it started to look absurd when CEOs started to be paid 600 times the value right. of one of their employers on, employees on the shop floor. I mean, how do you compute that? Why is somebody worth 6 million, 6 billion? They're not in real terms of productivity. So in that sense, for the elite, for the upper echelons, we'd already broken any connection between productivity and reward. So we have to think about that for everybody and think about well is this just an imposition which i think it really is the idea that work of any kind is good for you meaningless work is not good for you you know only meaningful work is good for people and if automation robotics takes over meaningless work that is not a bad thing at all for the human condition providing that we're, you know, we're back to the old Mark, and it's no good everybody moaning about Marx. He was really simple. He just said, you've got to provide the basics. Um, that's really not revolutionary stuff. You know, nobody should be saying, oh, God, they're a Marxist. Uh, if you're asking, as I said at the beginning, for good, reasonable food, clean air, clean water, a roof over your head, education for your children, safety and freedom. I mean, if that's Marxist, I'm a Marxist. Bring it on. But why are we still arguing about that? Um, there is abundance, not scarcity in our world. The biggest lie is scarcity. Um, so we have to start telling the truth about where we really are. And yes, redefining the world of work. It's going to be absolutely essential in the future. What do we all need to live on? How are we going to organize society so that it's more democratically based? And Jobs, of course, are always going to be replaced. Look, an electric car has about 20 components, doesn't it, which can all be managed diagnostically. An internal combustion engine, there's 2,000 components and you need a mechanic. So 
We all want electric cars, but there's a lot of mechanics not going to have jobs. All of these things have to be thought about, not in the sense of, oh, I'm poor them, let's just chuck them on the streets and put them on welfare. But can we not plan this? You know, if capitalists were not so scared of planned economies, you know, they plan it for themselves, they just don't plan it for everybody else, then we could manage the situation. Isn't that what brains are for? Isn't that what governments are for? It's not about some communist Soviet state. It's about saying this huge change is happening. You know what? It needs some planning. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's so important. Um, you know, I live in a government in the country now where the government is in effect abdicated. Right, um, exactly. You know, we're right, in that's supply like you... chain shortages. We're in chaos here in England. We're, we have absolute buffoons running the place who continually stand up and say, this isn't the job of government. This is the job of private companies. And you think, well, then let's get rid of government altogether because what exactly right. are you doing? In so much as we have government, governments are there to plan infrastructure, big systems, big changes to manage the things that private companies, however large, and this includes big tech, either cannot or should not manage. If you want to hand everything over to Silicon Valley, then we're doing a good job right now. Right. They'll love that. They're, they're, they they love that. They're, 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 they're on it. They're, ready, on I can it. Tell they're you. in it. You know, they you know, but I don't want to be ruled by Mark Zuckerberg very much because I don't think anything in his background makes him capable of being world king. Well, and, and as you were saying, it's a disabling function to saying that you know all these th tools that human beings have developed over the last however many thousand years for figuring out what we as a collective want to do are suddenly going to be useless in front of these innovations and you know we should just throw up our hands you know stare at our gizmo and do whatever it says without sort of calling it to account without making kind of our claim on it it's just it seems so backwards to me you know the, the fact that like as you say when all these things are happening like, yeah, that's what we're called upon. That's what we're most necessary, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, it's our job. And there are lovely things. For me, I think having little iPals running around your house to interact with your children, to teach them things, help them with their homework, is loads better than putting them in front of the TV. That's a real step forward. And yeah. robots are patient. You know, your kid can take as long as your kid likes to learn their algebra, and your little iPal will teach them. Similarly, you know, an old person with dementia, with Alzheimer's can say the same thing 500 times an hour and her little iPal will not care you know and it's foolish yeah. to say we won't build a relationship with these machines anybody who's ever fallen in love with their teddy bear will build a relationship with these machines so all the TV love, character yeah yeah we're used to this people pray to a sky god every day which is a non-biological entity people think there are angels demons leprechauns you know ghosts spirits all our human psyche is geared up to having relationships with non-biological entities. You know, and for some people, things that are not made of meat are the place where they have their most significant relationship, whether they're praying to their God or talking to their deceased partner. This is real. We can do this in our minds. So we will have relationships with embodied mm. AI, which is robotics, and we will have relationships with non-embodied AI, our operating systems. You know, we just will. And so we have to accept that and think, all right, how do we figure this out? How is it going to change what it means to be human? And not think this is a bad thing, just think, well, you know, this is where we are in life. Yeah. And I think one of the things you're saying with this book is not only that that is inevitable in the future, but that it's already happening. We already have these sorts of parasocial relationships with these operating systems. That's how advertisers are marketing to us. 
I find the Google's patent, you know, that eventually will give you an app to go on speaking to your dead loved one. I find that really creepy. Yes. Just just a smidge. Yeah. Yes. Literal literal ghosts. Yes. What could what could go wrong? Well, uh, yeah. Um, you know, do you really want? I mean, we all we we do also have to be able to move on. And if say say Kurt Svalz and Co are right, and we do start to live longer, so that lifespan moves from eighty to one hundred and fifty, and perhaps even further, you can't be dragging the dead around with you all the time. You have to form new relationships, and maybe that's something that we will learn. New, you know, we'll have more than one life. We'll have more than one lover. We'll have more than one family, more than one career. And that's going to be mind-blowing because actually everything that we do is predicated on a life of about 80 years. And that's the mindset. Suppose that were to change. Suppose tomorrow you all knew that you were going to stay reasonably healthy and live to 150. That that would actually blow your brains out for at least two weeks, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not ready for infinity. I mean, organic yeah. cognac would not would not help. It would have to be <laughs> help. It, it would, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't do it. Organic so, whiskey, at the very least. No, so I think those big changes are really coming. It's a confrontation with what we assume to be human nature. But you know, we share ninety eight percent of our genetic material with non human things anyway. You know, you you fifty percent of you is a banana. You know, we we share what is it ninety seven ninety eight percent with chimps and bonobos. Um, you know, this human exceptionalism is actually quite fragile <laughs> when we get there. So if we've got to yeah. move on now into something else, something different, something more sustainable, perhaps something even a bit kinder, then maybe we should do that. Well, watch out for our next follow-up event. We'll be doing a four-hour session on the afterlife and Ella's yes. on us. Um, <laughs> I love all but, of that. I can't believe that Mrs. Winterson is going to be right. What a blow. It's true. You're right. You're right. But I feel I feel in this conversation time running scant, as Jeanette has shared the middle of the night in England with us. Yes. I just want to throw in one oh, yeah, more look, plug it's nearly midnight. That's fun. It's nearly midnight. We've been having such a good time. I just want to plug this excellent book. It is funny. It is poignant. It is brilliant. If you love Jeanette Winterson enough to come to this conversation, you will not walk away disappointed from this book. And you will probably also learn some things. I know I did. So run, don't walk to your local independent bookstore and not to Amazon to purchase this. <laughs> That's right. Don't fund the rocket. No. Oh, right. no penis rockets, only independent bookstores. No more, no more penis rockets. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeanette. This was absolutely wonderful. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. You can have a drink now. It's time. <laughs> it's time. I'm ready. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.